Today's episode is brought to you by SeatGeek, the smartest and easiest way to get tickets to every MLB game. With SeatGeek's seamless mobile experience, you can buy and sell tickets in just two taps. SeatGeek helps you find the best seats at the best prices, fully guaranteed. There's nothing quite like seeing the best plays of the year in person, and SeatGeek will get you closer to the action for a great value. I have the SeatGeek app on my phone, and I know of no easier way to shop for tickets. If you get the app too, you can be anywhere, and with just a few taps, instantly find seats. I'm going to see Ben Gibbard, the writer of the Ringer MLB show theme song on Thursday in New York. You could use SeatGeek for something like that because SeatGeek doesn't end with sports. It also has plenty of concert, comedy, and theater tickets available. And no matter what event you're attending, SeatGeek is designed to make your ticket buying experience easier than ever. SeatGeek saves you time and money by searching multiple ticket sites to compare prices and find amazing deals. And to get you the most bang for your buck, SeatGeek grades every ticket based on value to help you immediately identify the best seats that fit your budget. Plus, every purchase is fully guaranteed, so you can shop for tickets on SeatGeek with confidence. Best of all, Ringer MLB show listeners get a $20 rebate off their first SeatGeek purchase. To get your $20 rebate on tickets, download the SeatGeek app, go to the settings tab and click add a promo code, and then enter the promo code RINGERMLB. That's all one word. SeatGeek will send you $20 after you've made your first ticket purchase. So download the SeatGeek app and enter promo code RINGERMLB today. And if you own sunglasses, you know that scratches happen. With Revent Optics, you can replace your lenses and save your sunglasses. Revent Optics offers high-quality polarized, non-polarized, and prescription replacement lenses for any brand. Starting at just $24 a pair, they're crystal clear, guaranteed to fit, and backed by a one-year warranty. So go to reventoptics.com slash MLB, that's R-E-V-A-N-T optics.com slash MLB, and get 20% off your first pair of lenses with offer code MLB. Pack it in, let me begin. I came to win, battle me, that's a sin. This is the Ringer MLB Show, part of the Ringer Podcast Network. I'm Mike Bauman, he's Ben Lindbergh, we're both staff writers, and we're going to Neil's House of Pain later in the show. Oh my goodness, you're not just writing originals anymore, you're covering no, the classics. We're, we're doing covers. Yeah, we are talking to Neil Payne, my former colleague at 538, in just a few minutes, but we do have a bit of banter first. I'm sure he's sick to death of that joke. <laughs> I'm sure, <laughs> Fortunately, he didn't have to hear it unless he's listening to this episode. Sorry, Neil. So we've got some news to get to, right? You just wrote a quick dispatch about Clayton Kershaw, who left a game on Sunday and then was added to the DL for back-related reasons. And that is about all we know as you and I speak right now. But of course, we also know that this is not his first time going on the DL with a back problem. Yeah, that's, I mean, at the time I was writing, we didn't really know anything. I think the the Dodgers are sort of taking Monday to scan him within an inch of his life and figure out if this is a two-week thing or if this is going to be like last year where he missed two months. So even two months would get him back right before the playoffs. But after he came back from his back injury last year, he didn't go more than seven innings in a start through the end of the year. And that's, you know, if he only gets a start or two in before the playoffs, it's still a little bit squirrely, even if he comes back Mm -hmm. and pitches well. So, you know, we don't know much. And and I don't know if this makes them buyers for you, Darvish, if if this is a, a really severe injury. So, yeah, this is scary. It might not be bad, but if it is bad, it's going to be really bad. Yeah. The rumors surrounding the Dodgers have mostly been about the fact that they don't think they need to get that kind of guy, a a top of the rotation starter, that they have a lot of depth, that they had Kershaw and Hill and Wood and had enough not to have to make that big move. But 
yeah, if Kershaw is out for an extended time, then that could make them rethink that. He has, I mean, if his season ended here, he would still have extended his streak of lowering his career ERA in every season of his I'm career. I'm way more invested in this than I thought I'd be. To I be love totally this streak. Honest. Yeah, I wrote about it this spring, and he has now extended it to nine seasons of lowering his career ERA if it stands at 2.07 this season, where, where it is right now, which, I mean, I think it's a really cool streak that he has managed to do that, given that he started his rookie year with a 4.26 ERA. So it's not as if he came up and like had a couple disaster starts in September of 2008 or something, and he's been lowering it since then. His ERA was pretty low to begin with, and then he's had, you know, sub like 2.5 ERAs mm-hmm. now for years and years, and he is still lowering it. And obviously he has improved after his initial struggles this season and he's had some home run issues which might be partly luck partly location but he has been Clayton Kershaw recently and so obviously a huge loss for the Dodgers and a loss for everyone who likes watching and following Clayton Kershaw which should be everyone who cares about baseball yeah and that's a good segue to Steven Strasburg who also lasted only two innings on Sunday with uh, we read uh, according to Chelsea Janes of the the Washington Post forearm stiffness and we both made the same noise right (laughs) yeah Especially with someone like Strasburg with his history and maybe he's still in that Tommy John grace period where you have a fresh ligament and it lasts for a while. But with him, I mean, it's it's always scary when you have any kind of arm related issue. And it's been a while. I don't know. if Yeah, if it has. It's been since what, 2010 he got he got cut. Has it been that long? I, I guess so, right? Because he came up that season and then year, got hurt yeah. almost instantly. Here, yeah. Actually looking it up so we can stop hemming and hawing. <laughs> right. But yeah, it would have been 2010. Yeah. So and, you know, I feel like people have kind of been waiting for the the real breakthrough Steven Strasburg season. And maybe part of that is just not recognizing how great he really has been because he has been excellent when he's been healthy. And it's just a matter of he's only had one 200 inning season and this was probably not going to be the second one. But yeah, there was a, a chance at least. And now that's looking a lot less likely. He's got almost 80 innings to go at this point. So, But he has been great and he is pretty much always great when he's healthy. And so, I don't know. He's kind of one of those guys like, I mean, he falls very much into the Bryce Harper bucket of the expectations were so stratospherically high that there was almost no way to meet or exceed them. And, you know, unless you have like that Harper 2015 season every year, I don't know how Harper meets those expectations. And unless... Strasburg had come back and pitched like he did in 2010, 2011, when we first got glimpses of him and he was unhittable if he did that forever. But he has been great and losing him would also be a a big loss, not so much in the regular season. Again, both of these teams are pretty set right now, even in the game where Kershaw left early, the Dodgers won in a Mm walk-off, of course, because the Dodgers win every single day. But that uh, is something that would hurt clearly a few months down the road. Yeah. I mean, Strasburg, he's been a little inconsistent, but his highs have been really high. I mean, he's got a strikeout Mm -hmm. title. He's he's almost been kind
kind of Darvish like in the yeah. yeah he's had a lot of strikeouts but has occasionally had trouble staying healthy. He probably he had a decent shot to win the Cy Young award if they hadn't shut him down in 2012. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's all obviously water well well under the bridge. Right. Speaking of big losses, the Milwaukee Brewers. I want to address this quickly. They have uh, not played well since the the All Star break, and on Sunday they lost Cato Kalen, uh, who went on. <laughs> yes. Uh, I recommend that you go on Twitter at Cato underscore Kalen and read this extensive rant in which he comes for he says the team doesn't deserve a charter jet they don't even deserve spirit airlines which is the level of animus i've never felt towards a sports team <laughs> i know brewers are all caps puke maybe a crop duster or at greyhound bus i love that he tags greyhound uh in this uh in this tweet he comes after uh, javi guerra and david stearns and craig council and anastasio which i believe is uh, he means owner mark adonasio so this is I, I had no idea that, that he was this invested in the Brewers, but like it's it's a collar tugging time up in Milwaukee right now. Yeah, it feels a lot like 1995 lately with some of the uh, OJ related news that we've been reading. But I would think that uh, the Brewers deserve a, a slightly longer leash here before We're still in <laughs> before, first place. Yeah, I mean, I think they've done enough to deserve some commendation for this season, even if they do ultimately lose that perch yeah. and have the Cubs overtake them to have lasted this long, I think is quite a success. Yeah. And one last thing before we get to Neil, uh, mm-hmm. I was just looking at looking at this. We talk about how muddled the AL wildcard race is. The top mm-hmm. 13 teams in the American League standings are within a game of 500 over their past 10 games. Wow. I mean, we talk, we actually talk about the lack of parity in, uh, in baseball nowadays, and mm-hmm. it has been extremely paritable uh, in the American <laughs> League over the past week and a half. Yeah. All right. Well, of course, that is not the case in the NL West, where the Dodgers have now pulled out to a 10 and a half game lead. And if the Dodgers are without Kershaw for some period of time, they are about as well positioned to lose someone like that as any team we've seen in the last oh several decades. And speaking of that, we are going to bring on someone who has been writing about the Dodgers and the Astros and all of the eliteness of the elite teams this year, as well as some trade deadline talk we will get into. It is my former colleague at 538, Neil Payne, who is a editor and sports writer for 538, as well as co-host of Hot Takedown, 538 Sports Podcast, and the Panic City Podcast about <laughs> the Mets, which has been full of panic this season. Hello, Neil. Hey, thanks. Thanks for having me on, guys. <laughs> yeah, thanks for coming on. So you wrote first about the Astros and the Dodgers alone, and then you followed up with an article about, what, four more teams that, if you look at them a certain way, paint this season's best teams as the best, best teams we've seen in a really long time. So to explain what you did, I guess we need to explain 538's handy tool for rating everything, right? You want to get into the the ELO ratings? Sure. Yeah. Uh, what better time than the present to, t- to talk about the ELO ratings? So uh, at 538, we do a lot with these ELO ratings, which is uh, something that originally came from the chess world to try to rate, you know, and rank chess players. And it goes back to, I think, the 1950s or 60s. 
and it's applicable in pretty much every sport where you have a winner and a loser because it's based on basically giving each team or player a rating before a matchup and then getting a win probability out of those ratings and then looking at what actually happened and then you know updating your prior as it were depending on what happened in the game or the match or, or whatever you want to call it and so in the case of baseball we have a version that tracks how good the teams are but then also makes an adjustment for the starting pitcher in each game and also how difficult it was to put up a game score of a certain amount against uh, the opposing offense and so it kind of runs through almost like two parallel ratings one for the team sort of uh, starting pitcher neutral and then one for the particular starter in a given game so Pedro Martinez uh, at his peak had the highest rating of all time and I think he boosted the Red Sox chance of winning a game by about 16 percentage points uh, each time that he started and then you know some of the worst starters will they won't take away quite that much that no one is allowed to be quite that bad and still have a major league job but it gives you sort of a sense of who's good and who's bad and who's playing well in the moment because it uh, it gives more weight just as a consequence of the way that the system works to more mm-hmm. recent results it sounds almost as if you've been asked to explain elo ratings before <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah I've, I've done it a few times <laughs> So the the chess world, the chess rankings are they're a very different problem than than trying to rank baseball teams because we sort of have you know run differential and one loss record to rank teams and the pool of of competitors is all, is also much smaller thirty as opposed to thousands of high level chess players across the world. So you know what are some of the the challenges of adapting this to a very different problem? Yeah, I mean, you mentioned run differential. I think trying to figure out how to actually bake that into a system that originally was intended uh, and still when it's used in chess doesn't really have the concept of a margin of victory. I mean, I think there are variants that use like the fewest amount of time that you need to checkmate someone uh, in chess and sort of use that as a proxy for what we would consider point differential or run differential. But yeah, just trying to work that into baseball, I think, was the biggest challenge. And also the fact that, like I mentioned, the starting pitcher adjustment. It's not like chess where one player, especially in a game like that, where the amount of luck is so small compared to the amount of skill that's present uh, until you get to like the highest of the high levels. In baseball, there's a huge amount of luck. And also you have a different guy taking the mound and and having a huge influence on his team's chances every fifth day. Uh, I think those were the biggest challenges in adapting it to baseball. So what did you notice about the distribution of ELO ratings this season? It definitely stands out based on a couple of your recent articles. Yeah, so the the top two teams, you mentioned the Dodgers and the Astros, are like ridiculously good compared with other top two teams from years in the past. And this was something I noticed when I was just poking around looking at the at the rankings. I thought, man, these two top two teams are way better than I remember the Cubs being last year at the same time. And the Cubs had really kind of a historic season, uh, and you guys wrote about it too. And so I thought, like, well, let's look at where the Dodgers and the Astros rank. And each of them, it turns out, was basically had the same ELO rating as the 1927 New York Yankees uh, through the same point of the season. So it was like, we don't have just one analog for the 27 Yankees, which a lot of people consider to be the greatest team of all time. We have two of them uh, occurring in the same season, which was pretty mind-boggling. And I think some of that is a little bit of a consequence of ELO regresses to a slightly higher than the average for all of Major League Baseball history mean after each season. So it kind of bakes in this assumption 
assumption that very slightly over time, the level of play for all of Major League Baseball is getting higher, which I, I think is a pretty defensible yeah, pretty assumption yeah. to make. And so it might be slightly a consequence of that, but I think it's mostly a consequence of these two teams are having incredible seasons and they're both doing it sort of at the same time. And then you mentioned a second story that I wrote on this where I sort of was digging around after I had done the first story. I thought, you know, look at the third best team, the Nationals at the time, and I think they still are. They have the rating of really what you would think would be a little bit below average number one team in the average season. And if you go on down the line to the Red Sox and the Cubs and the Indians, they all are above average, in some cases substantially above average for their ranking slot among the league compared with the normal season. So in in a sense, we have these six teams, and I just rattled them off, they all are playing much better than we would expect the top six teams in just the normal MLB season to be playing. And I don't know what kind of havoc that's going to wreak in the playoffs. And I I don't know what the consequences are going to be. And I don't even know what the consequences necessarily are going to be for the trade deadline if, if teams are kind of taking into account the fact that there are just these juggernauts that are at the top of the league and, and what that does to your world series odds. And that's, that's always the next question, right? Is, you know, you find something out and then what does it mean? What's it, what is this going to do to, to things that we've sort of taken for granted? It's like the way that baseball works. So, you know, assuming that we don't actually know, you know, how do you think this could affect the trade deadline or the randomness that we usually associate with the playoffs? You know, are you looking for something to happen, even if, you know, we don't have data to back any assumptions up? Well, I think one thing at the trade deadline, which I, I still don't think we have a good sense for whether or not teams universally realize this or not. But one of the things that my research has shown in the past is that your chances of winning the World Series are what you should be maximizing when you go into the trade deadline and you're thinking about trading away prospects for the future versus trying to win this season. Uh, And I think the conception of the trade deadline mentality for a lot of teams in the past has always been, well, it should be for teams that are on the cusp of the playoffs. And, you know, they're they're battling in a tough, you know, division race or a wild card race now these days. So what they need is that extra player to, you know, kind of put them over the top, get them into the playoffs, and then just roll the dice once you get into the playoffs. Well, I, I think uh, one of the things that hasn't really always been appreciated is there's no amount of talent that you can add to your team once you get into the playoffs that will, you know, kind of reach diminishing returns on your World Series odds. And as a consequence of that, the teams that really should be adding the best pieces at the trade deadline are teams like the Astros and you know the Dodgers the teams that are already the best because baseball is such a random sport that if you can take yourself from a 20% chance of, of winning the World Series on the eve of the playoffs to a 25% or God forbid a 30% chance that has a huge implication on what you should do at the trade deadline in terms of adding talent you shouldn't be thinking about taking yourself from being a 2% chance to a 6% chance or something like that if you're on the cusp of, of making the playoffs, but you might get knocked out early, especially with a wild card being what it is. Yeah, and to go back to to the article about the top six teams, I think maybe some people would be surprised to see, say, the the Indians and the Cubs there, and that the Indians have failed to to really pull far ahead of their closest competitors in the Central, which was anticipated to be kind of a cakewalk for them. And then the Cubs still have not managed to go ahead of the Brewers, and then the Red Sox, which was fourth best team according to the piece 
maybe also considered somewhat disappointing, although they've at least solidified themselves in first place now. So could you explain why those teams that have kind of been underwhelming in in terms of their actual records still rank fairly highly uh, according to those ELO ratings? Well, I think some of it does come down to run differential. Like we mentioned before, you know, the Indians have this incredibly out of whack run differential with their winning percentage and their Pythagorean record. And especially if you look at something like war, which is not directly taken into account by ELO, but I think with a starting pitcher adjustment and things like that, you start to kind of move more in that direction, even than something like Pythagorean record. The Indians do look like an elite team. The only thing is that their, their record in close games is not necessarily caught up to that. But I think ELO being designed to be a predictive system is geared to try to filter out the noise of, of luck in one run games and you know close games and so it's going to shade more toward something like run differential and there's also the matter of you know your preseason priors and I think that comes up with a team like the Cubs and maybe a little less so the Red Sox but you know the Cubs were assumed to be this dominant team going into the season and even though they haven't necessarily played like that especially record wise during the season they still carry a certain amount of that you know through even this point of the season Uh, And I'm sure you've looked at this in the past that, you know, we're about what, like 90, maybe coming up on 100 games into the season right now. And even at that point in the season, your preseason expectation for a team carries much more of a weight than uh, I think a lot of people would realize when it Mm -hmm. comes to predicting a team's future record. Yeah. I mean, that is sort of the the whole question with the Cubs versus the Brewers is, you know, how much you you weight those preseason expectations, because even in baseball, we're almost four months in the season that's a really long time and it's not that like we think necessarily that um that kyle schwarber is bad now or something like that but that there's only so much we do have a lot of data on this season and there's only so much time to regress to to preseason expectations so like at, at what point do you start adjusting that how much weight does preseason priors have in the elo system this far into the season well, they probably have less than half a team's you know, rating is going to be uh, impacted by that now. Because if I'm thinking about it, I think around the 70-game mark or 75-game mark is where if you were just looking at a team's record, you would regress it, you know, give it about 75 games of 500 winning percentage and then you know, whatever the number of games that they've had of their actual winning percentage. So I think ELO being more tuned to preseason expectations than just assuming every team has a true talent of a 500 record. And also having run differential baked in instead of just wins and losses, it it probably would be, I don't know, just off the top of my head, and this is not scientific at all, but I would think it's like two thirds what we've seen so far. And that includes, you know, a run differential perspective more so than a win and loss perspective. And then maybe a third preseason expectation, but it might be a little different than that. It's just kind of off the top of my head. And as you pointed out in your piece about how this year's elite teams are unusually elite, we're just a couple of years on from the time when we were all writing and talking about how this was unprecedented parody and no teams were standing out and baseball was so incredibly competitive. And now things seem to have changed so quickly. Do you think there's any institutional reason for that? Is there something that explains how these elite teams have come about so soon after that era? of parody or is it just a cyclical random sort of thing? 
Yeah, I don't know. I mean, you guys might have as good of a sense of that as I do, because, you know, I think one thing is that payroll is is mattering more than it did in the past. You know, there was a couple years ago where I think some research was done that showed that payroll had practically no correlation with with how well a team did, which always seemed to be a fluke to me. Definitely, if you look at the long term history of baseball, you would expect that payroll would play at least some role in how well a team would do. But now if you look at the you know, the best teams in baseball, the Dodgers have the highest payroll in baseball. The Yankees are having a good year this year. The Red Sox, you know, you can go down the line and you'll find teams like the Blue Jays and, and teams like the Tigers that are kind of pressing the reset button or should press the reset button. The Giants may be the biggest counterexample to this. But I think by and large, payroll is playing more of a role in explaining how well a team plays than it did during that period of parity. And then it also might be, you know, the teams that, that tanked during that period are now seeing a lot of the dividends be paid from those draft classes and those prospect classes that they kind of raised up during that period. And so what had appeared to be parity might have just been a bunch of teams tanking or going through rebuilding, if we're going to use a euphemism for it, at the same time. And then when those teams all kind of go into their competing mode out of that low period at the same time, then you're starting to see you know, an unprecedented amount of talent being accumulated at the same time around, you know, just a handful of teams. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And those are, I mean, those two explanations would certainly account for the Dodgers and also the Cubs last year and the the Astros this year. So the unprecedented part, part of this is not that the Dodgers are so good. It's that the Astros as the second best team are so good. So what is having that, that second great, like we're seeing sort of knock on effects of this. Like, is this why, why the AL wildcard playoff race is so, is so weird right now or the, or the NL central that we've just, you know, we've only got like two or three amazing teams and then just sort of mediocrity. And it's, there's like a whole lot in the middle. Is it, are the Dodgers and the Astros sort of shaking up the rest of the standing steers you can tell or is or are those two um phenomena i guess unrelated yeah i'm not sure you know how much of an effect it has other than obviously you know they're beating the the heck out of everyone that they play and again that you know you mentioned kershaw potentially being out and then also you know carlos correa was injured so we'll probably see both of these teams just for injury reasons come back down to earth as we you know go into the stretch run of the season and it wouldn't surprise me as well if teams like this also just kind of let off the gas as they go down, you know, and they're preparing for the playoffs. They're all but assured of making the playoffs. And so, you know, that will give other teams that are playing them more of a chance to kind of rack up wins uh, of their own. But, you know, aside from that, like, I, I don't know what causes the top teams to be so great. And then you kind of fall off a cliff. And especially in the AL, it, it is going to matter for the playoff race. In the NL, we didn't even mention the Diamondbacks who are having a great season, uh, they are kind of penalized by that prior effect and maybe to a lesser extent the Brewers who haven't necessarily played up to that level uh, as much as some of the other teams. The Diamondbacks, if you just look at this season, they are unquestionably in that elite class of teams. And the Yankees also, you know, you could mention in that as well. And so that's going to be another situation where you try to really make that tough balancing act between what we've seen so far from this team and what we expected of a team and trying to figure out what uh, how much weight to give each one so yeah i mean i think there's a lot of things that can complicate the the playoff picture in addition to just having these top teams looking like juggernauts relative to the top teams from seasons in the past 
If you have the updated numbers handy, which one of those two teams does Elo say is the best team in baseball currently? So I believe the the number one team is the Dodgers. Yeah, I'm just calling mm-hmm. it up now. They have a 1594 Elo rating as opposed to the Astros, which have a 1589. Uh, uh-huh. And to give you a sense of you know what that actually means in in real life terms, the Dodgers, according to our simulations, which play out each game left in the season, according to Elo and you know with the starting pitcher adjustment for the games that we know who will be starting and then you know just elo from there on out the dodgers are on pace to win 108 games this season according to the the average simulation and the astros are on pace to win 105 games so this would only be the second time in history that two teams in the same season won at least 105 games the other time was 1998 when the yankees and the braves both won at least 105 and uh you know just to kind of pour a bucket of cold water on this idea that maybe the dodgers and astros are on that collision course that season in 1998 the yankees were there in the world series and the Braves were not. So uh, by far, you know, none of this is destined to happen, no matter how dominant a team looks at this point in the season. All right, let's take a quick break to hear from our sponsors, and we'll be right back with more from Neil. If you're like me and you're not so great at planning ahead when it comes to travel, I've got good news for you. There's this awesome app called Hotel Tonight that helps you find amazing hotel deals at the last minute. It sounds counterintuitive, but unlike flights, hotel rates usually get cheaper at the last minute. And Hotel Tonight helps hotels sell their unsold rooms, allowing them to pass those deals along to you. These aren't last resort places. They're actually cool, top-rated hotels you want to stay in. And with so many great partner hotels in a ton of different countries, Hotel Tonight can help you find a great hotel almost anywhere. It's perfect for a spontaneous getaway or for finally going on that trip you've been wanting to take for a while. We've got a few trips coming up in August, going to see the solar eclipse. It's not too late. You can use Hotel Tonight to do that. And even though the app's name is Hotel Tonight, you can book up to a week in advance. All it takes is 10 seconds, just three taps and a swipe. So get in on these killer last minute deals and download the Hotel Tonight app now. I also want to tell you about Revent Optics. Do you have a pair of sunglasses with scratch lenses? You either threw them into a junk drawer or you're still wearing them, squinting through the scratches. Thanks to Revent Optics, you no longer have to live with those scratches or keep buying pair after pair of new sunglasses. Instead, you can save your sunglasses and replace your lenses with high-quality polarized, non-polarized, and prescription replacement lenses available for any brand on the market. Starting at just $24 a pair, Revent Optics lenses are a fraction of the price of brand-name sunglasses, and because they test their lenses to ensure razor-sharp clarity, they're a much better option than cheap gas station shades. Revent lenses are easy to install, guaranteed to fit, and backed by a one-year warranty. And if you can't find your sunglasses listed on their website, Revent Optics can cut custom lenses for you at their lab in Portland, Oregon. Join over 500,000 customers and try them risk-free with their 60-day money-back guarantee. Plus, enjoy free shipping and returns in the U.S. And get 20% off your first order when you use offer code MLB. Go to reventoptics.com MLB. That's R-E-V-A-N-T optics.com slash MLB, reventoptics.com. Replace your lenses, save your sunglasses. Now let's get back to baseball. So we've sort of bounced around. We've talked a little bit about the trade deadline, but maybe now that Clayton Kershaw is on the, the shelf for some unspecified period of time, they, the Dodgers and Astros, they might be competing with each other for a starting pitcher, maybe. So when you wrote about the trade line, you referenced uh, the Doyle number, which is uh-huh. how hard a team should go after wins for this season at the trade deadline. And about six months before you first came up with that, I wrote something similar at Grantland. And I, I did that, that calculus, not based 
basing it off of World Series odds, but about how close you are to the the boundary of making the playoffs or not. And I think that even with the the Dodgers and the Astros, the World Series odds you've got here are twenty six and a half percent for the Dodgers and twenty four point six for the Astros. That's still like not a lot. That's still kind of crapshooty, particularly compared to to the NBA, where the the Cavs and Warriors were similarly dominant. And sure enough, they went to the to the NBA Finals together. So, are are these two teams so far out in front of the pack that we we start to reevaluate the you know this idea that the playoffs are random? You know, how much can they just sort of muscle their way through you know a lot of the short series weirdness that that so often determines playoffs? Well, yeah, I mean, I think you say it that like, even though we have these two historically dominant teams at the same time, added up, they only add up to about 50% chance of winning the World Series, which I don't know how deep into the playoffs you'd have to get to have the Golden State Warriors by themselves have a 50% chance, but it probably happened. It may have happened before the playoffs started. It happened happened at the All-Star break, I'm pretty sure. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, certainly in retrospect, also, you know, when we look back, must have come extremely early. So that does give you a good sense of even when you have historically great teams, they are far from being guaranteed. And that kind of plays into what the Doyle number that you referenced, which, uh, of course, the name for Doyle Alexander, who the uh, the Tigers traded for John Smoltz at, I believe it was that 1987 trade mm-hmm. deadline. The, this idea of trading away future assets in exchange for just going all in on uh, a rental is sort of the platonic ideal of, of what this Doyle number measures is, you know, how many extra wins in the future should you give up in exchange for just getting one more win from one of these rentals this season? And the and one of the implications that I found was that because the playoffs are such a crapshoot and because this potential 108-win team only has about a 25 to 30% chance of winning the World Series, is that you can never have enough talent. The, the deadline should be about as much about those teams that are trying to maximize their chance of winning the World Series, even if they have this you know league-leading probability of winning at the end of July uh, as much uh, or more about that as as one of those teams that's on the cusp of making the playoffs and is trying to make a push and then you know let the crapshoot take over I mean there's probably a sweet spot in between there also where a team that is not one of the two dominant teams but is in that other group that that I rattled off of the top six that it makes sense for them to to also push themselves into that dominant territory over the rest of the season because you know the difference between the ELO ratings of those top two teams like the Astros having the second best uh, of that and then the third best Washington Nationals, it's about, you know, something like eight to 10 wins of talent, which is a pretty big gap. I mean, this is a huge gap between the number two and number three teams. But if you could just close that by half, I mean, that's, you know, the equivalent of picking up like an all-star player. And there are a few players like that that could potentially be, you know, available at the trade deadline. That's something that one of those teams might be best positioned to try to go all in for because this idea, you know, and the Washington Nationals coincidentally are a great example of this. You know, when they shut down Steven Strasburg a few years ago, the rationale was always, oh, we'll get another chance. We'll be here for, for a number of years. We don't need to maximize our chances this year, even though we're, you know, in, in a great position at this moment in time, because we're going to get a bunch of cracks at it down the road. And I think, you know, ask the Nationals now versus, you know, back then, uh, what was it, five years ago when that Mm -hmm. happened? Yeah. You know, I think that that's a great illustration of, yeah, you're going to get cracks at it, but 
also in baseball, there's something particular about the way Major League Baseball's playoffs are set up that you also got to strike while the iron is hot and, and you may never get another chance quite as good as the chance that you have right now when you find yourself raised up to this level in the league. Uh, and that goes even for a team like the Yankees who have this amazing farm system, but they find themselves ahead of schedule with this great season that they're having this year that you know, as great as a farm system is, you can never guarantee that you're going to be back in this exact position again down the road. And I want to I want to go to the team right behind them in the standings, the Royals. They're probably the most fascinating team for me at the deadline because like they're not very good. And yet here they are in playoff position a week before the trade deadline. And they're going to lose everyone next year. They're going to lose Vargas and Eric Cosmer is going to be a free agent. Uh, Lorenzo Cain's going to be a free agent. Four or five other guys, key contributors to this team. And they're not in a position to, to rebuild right now. And they find themselves at a really... They know that they're that if they made another run, they'd be fluky. They would have to be one of those fluky things, particularly considering how good the Astros are in that AL bracket. But this is going to be the best chance they're going to get for a couple years, no matter what they do. So, you know, the Doyle number doesn't really take into account that sort of that larger picture. And it becomes a much more complicated quantitative problem if you're trying to measure out utility four years down the road. So what would you I guess, what would you do if you were dating more? Because that's that's really been one of the most interesting questions to me. And you know, I'm interested to, to hear what you think about it. Yeah, I'm really fascinated by those teams that are actually like according to our best metrics and our best guesses are actually not that good and i think the brewers are potentially another example of that they've hung around a lot longer than anybody expected that they would and the royals are you know clawing themselves back a lot further than anybody thought i think those are teams that the doyle number sort of gives more of a green light to than you would expect based on just you know their underlying talent level because again it is about as much about capitalizing on the moment that you find yourself in and if you unexpectedly find yourself contending that's a gift from heaven and you have to sort of build your talent base up almost to catch up to or try to catch up as much as possible to the playoff odds that you have and you know the Royals are a team that the the Doyle number doesn't really give like a high chance to and again this was as of maybe a week and a half ago or something yeah, like that won so five games you know, in a row since then, yeah yeah, a lot can change in that amount of time. And so I think their number would be higher and it probably would put them in that sort of like, should I sell or should I buy, you know, kind of cautious territory. But also you bring up a great point about like the considerations that it doesn't take into account. And it is definitely like a super oversimplified model that, you know, can take more things into account down the road. And I think thinking about the players that the team is losing most likely after the end of the season is a great way to sort of bolster the the accuracy or, you know, the decision-making ability of something like this, because right now it just sort of assumes like, okay, here's your current talent. Here's what we would expect your chances to be based on that talent in each of the next five years, or I think it's six years, actually, if you do nothing at the trade deadline. And so it's got a regression to the mean element baked into it, but it, it, it assumes, you know, normal levels of, of turnover between seasons. It doesn't take into account situations in which you're losing a bunch of players to free agency all at once. And that would be a situation that if you're just like eyeballing it, you would say the Doyle numbers underrating the degree to which a team like that should go out and buy. Yeah. 
once again, the projection systems are having a hard time dealing with the Royals in, in time-honored tradition. <laughs> what a surprise. <laughs> right. And what about some of the other edge cases there? I mean, you you have, a, for example, the, the Rangers, when you wrote this piece, were just slightly ahead of the Royals in whether they should consider buying. They were still kind of at the the upper end of the seller territory and the Blue Jays were way down there. That's another team that people have been wondering buy or sell. Pirates were just slightly ahead of the the Blue Jays too. So a lot of these teams that people have been wondering, should these guys sell? And uh, they probably won't sell. And they're still kind of going back and forth on on whether they will as we record right now. According to this entirely stats-based dispassionate (laughs) system, it says that they should and they should be looking toward the future. Yeah. And I think, first of all, this underscores how much uh, teams buying or selling status can change over the course of a couple of weeks. And, mm-hmm. you know, it always sounds silly to hear a GM say like, well, we're not sure right now, or, you know, we, we still think that we have a chance to kind of play our way in and it'll, right. it'll come down to our performance right up until July 31st. And it's just like, that's so absurd. It, it's so dumb, but it does show, you know, it can actually make a difference, you know, on your, uh, your status. And that's probably a reason why teams should wait until the 11th hour, you know, to pull the trigger on Things. And I do think that teams are sort of, for the most part, aside from a couple trades that we've seen so far, I mean, people are playing it pretty close to the vest at the deadline this year. And I don't know if that is a consequence of there being a group of, of elite teams at the top of the league and then just this rest of, you know, a mass of teams underneath them that could go either way. And you know, also, since we're talking about it being all about the championship odds, though, that I don't think it's necessarily going to matter that much whether the Rangers or the Royals or some of these other teams buy or sell because, again, like, even though the best teams only have a 25% chance apiece, there's two of those teams, that's 50% right there, and then you add up some of those other elite teams that we talked about at the top of the league, all of a sudden, your odds of fluking out in a year like this, a top-heavy year like this, start to look awfully slim compared to a year like 2014 or or 2015 where there was no clear runaway favorite and you had teams like the Royals or the Mets, you know, kind of play their way into the World Series unexpectedly. Mm -hmm. And then at the end of that article, you actually use the the Doyle number and and some projections to try to matchmake a little bit and to (laughs) to put some of the available players or players we think are available, fill some spots on contenders that could be buying should be buying. Do you have any any favorite matches there that your system came up with that you would uh, advise any GMs to be considering over the next week? You know, I uh, first of all, I would not advise any GM to actually <laughs> use this that I cooked up in about uh, six hours of work when I was like, you know what, this would be cool to tack on to the end of this story. Yeah. My deadline isn't for another you know, five, six hours. Let me see if I can do this. So, you know, I would advise them to work on this for uh, years before. Yeah. <laughs> possibly. But yeah, I, I did like, I mean, I like any you Darvish trade in general, just because I really like you Darvish. And, you know, I, I'd like to see him <laughs> go to a team that could potentially win a world series. I, I also like the idea of, you know, the top teams like the Astros going out and getting somebody like that, even if it might seem, uh, I mean, I think the Astros do need a starter. I, I don't know if they would pony up for a starter of that caliber, uh, off the top of their head. If you, if you ask them, but, uh, 
yeah, and I also like Todd Frazier to the Yankees because it actually happened. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> uh, but yeah, you know, I, I think some of these are also opportunities for just for players that, you know, like Zach Cozart having such a great year for the Reds, but, you know, that's kind of being wasted uh, on that team. Going to teams that, you know, it potentially could impact a playoff race. I, I like seeing players that uh, have been plying their trade in somewhat anonymity, at least getting to make a difference in September and October. I like that Gerard Dyson of the Nationals trade a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, with their outfield situation being what it is, uh, I, I thought that was kind of a cool one for it to spit out. Yeah, but that would require Jerry Depoto selling, right? What is what does the the Doyle number say about the Mariners it's low. right now? <laughs> it's, it's low, uh, and and that's a situation where you can kind of see where the Mariners are coming from, the buyer, you know, mentality, especially for that team that has been so close to making the playoffs and just keeps finding ways to miss the playoffs. It seems like each year they've missed the playoffs more times with 84 wins than any team I can think of. You have to admire like just the willingness to stay in there and and try to battle for it. But uh, I think it's uh, a little bit of a, you know, tilting at a windmill here. Mm -hmm. And we have to wrap up with another guy you wrote about Aaron judge who has not written about Aaron judge recently. And (laughs) You also did your own home run derby hangover effect study, adding who, who to the most Everyone researched subject in baseball history. I don't think there's any subject in the world that has been covered and studied as thoroughly as the home run derby effect. And yet people still believe in it, it seems, which I guess is why we get a new crop of studies every single year trying to debunk it. But of course, Judge came out of the all-star break and slumped and then he hit home runs back to back games. And hey, he's Aaron Judge again and almost hit a ball out of Safeco Field. But what did you discover about Judge and more broadly about the so-called home run derby effect? (laughs) Well, about Judge in particular, I mean, according to Fangraphs, war at least, this was easily the best first half by a rookie since they have splits that can break things up, you know, by first and second half. And it's not even close. Chris Sabo's 1988 season, which I was a little shocked by uh, seeing that be the number two rookie first half by any player. Yeah, You just don't see players come out of the blue as a rookie and lead the league in war. I think he was recently, just recently passed by Sale or Scherzer or someone like that, but only in the last like couple days. So, you know, that in and of itself is historic and you kind of start to think about, well, maybe this is an edge case, maybe this is something like that. But for what it's worth, all the guys on that list of top rookie first halves, for the most part, declined and regressed to the mean. And that's, you know, what I think everyone will expect of Judge, especially given his batting average on balls of play and his home runs per fly ball and all of these indicators that we like to look at as, as being, you know, luck in addition to the tremendous skill that we've seen from a guy that can hit balls the distances that Judge can. And so that was kind of why I concluded that if and when he does regress, and he almost certainly will, and he instantly did, uh, at least in the, like you mentioned, in the first couple of weeks after the after the all-star break that people are going to blame it on the home run derby curse and it's really just regression to the mean no one as a rookie can come out and play that well and sustain it unless it's mike trout and you end up having a 
better second half than you did in the first half and you have a 10 war season as a rookie and that uh, there's a reason that has only happened like once in baseball history and that was mike trout (laughs) right one quick last one is it tough to sort of use large end data on a player like judge who's you know he's unique in terms of his size how hard the ball comes off his bat you know does that present any kind of a challenge when you're trying to project him Oh, yeah. I mean, definitely. Like, you know, just looking at his power numbers, like he's not overperforming that much compared to, you know, what you would expect from a rookie that's having that type of a season. Like we would expect him to be hitting 303 based on his exit velocity and his launch angle and things like that, which is still like, hey, that's amazing to have a rookie hitting 300 with the type of power numbers that he has. So, you know, I think that's a case where you start to dig into, uh, you know, some of the stat cast things and try to get a better sense than just looking at like, oh, well, Chris Sabo, apologies to Chris Sabo, but I don't know how much he has in common necessarily with Aaron Judge. But somebody like Albert Pujols, you know, there's some players on the list that are more comparable to to Judge and and some that are less comparable. Uh, And then, you know, to try to get a more fine view of things, that's when you start to look at StatCast and you're like, well, Aaron Judge is hitting the ball incredibly hard, but then you look at the other guys that are hitting the ball incredibly hard, you know, your Miguel Senos and people like that, and even they don't have like a 430 BABIP. Like, you know, it's got to come down to at least a, a reasonable level in the second half of the season, but that's not to say that it's going to regress completely to league average because he's hitting the ball harder than anyone on the face of the earth except maybe John Carlos Stanton. Mm-hmm. Well, since you are a part-time Mets podcaster, do you have any parting <laughs> words for the Mets as they head into this deadline with a very low Doyle number? I would say sell. That would be my, uh, my <laughs> yeah. advice to Sandy Alderson, my official advice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what would you like to see them sell? Well, I want to see Jay Bruce and Addison Reed and, and all the folks that are uh, due up for free agency to be in other uniforms come this time next week. And I would wish them the best and uh, I'll be rooting for them wherever they are. And uh, hopefully if we see Ahmed Rosario come up before the end of the season and we don't see Tim Tebow come up before the end of the season, <laughs> I'll consider it a, a successful stretch run for the Mets. <laughs> well, Tim Tebow, pretty impressive stats, I've got to say. <laughs> at yeah. Talk about your small sample sizes. Yeah. But yeah. You wrote something uh, earlier this season, I think, about the Mets and and about teams that are built the way the Mets are, right? Like very pitching heavy as opposed to hitting heavy. And you kind of came to a a counterintuitive conclusion, I think, because the conventional wisdom says that if you build your team around young pitching, then they're all going to get hurt and you're not going to win, which is what has happened to the Mets this year. (laughs) Yeah, I remember writing that. That was me. And Yeah. yeah, I think the conclusion was that there was really no significant difference between teams that were based around pitching to get most of their war and hitting in terms of the risk that they had to, you know, fall off a cliff. And I think that that was one of those sort of like, you know, let's revisit this later with with more of a deep dive down the line. So it could be young pitching, you know, maybe if your pitchers haven't passed the certain number of inning mark in their career, then maybe they're more at risk. I, I don't know what necessarily, you know, you would do. There, there are definitely things that you can do to to tweak that study but as a first pass i was a little surprised too like you mentioned you would expect uh pitching heavy teams to be more at risk but basically just the mets 
banked on the wrong group of pitchers, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> Who can explain it? And we also looked at their training staff and was this team unusually injured? Or, you know, do teams that have this kind of an injury rate tend to have it be repeatable from year to year? And again, this was one of those, there's no correlation. You know, it, it, you can write a bunch of narratives onto things like this, but if you look at the entirety of, of teams that we have data for, this type of thing just happens. And, you know, it's, it's not fun to be a fan, as I can speak to firsthand. <laughs> When it does happen to your team, but uh, it's it's very tempting to say that there's some particular reason why it happened to this particular team. And I think, you know, when you look at the history of baseball, though, these things just seem to happen. And there doesn't seem to always be a rhyme or reason to it that you can point to and say, let's fix this and then we'll be healthier next season. Or let's build around position players and we'll be healthier next season. And attempts like that are, are probably more often a, a fool's errand than something to, to actually build your team based on. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, you can hear Neil on Hot Takedown. You can hear him on Panic City Podcast, and you can read him regularly at 538. Glad we could get you on. Thank you, Neil. Thanks so much for having me, guys. This was great. All right. Well, as always, you've been listening to the Ringer MLB Show, part of the vast Ringer Podcast Network. Thanks for listening. We will be back on Thursday. Talk to you then, Michael. Jump, 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 jump. <laughs> Don't let scratches be the end of your sunglasses. Save your sunglasses and replace your lenses with Revent Optics. Revent Optics offers high-quality replacement lenses for any brand, starting at just $24. And with over 500,000 customers worldwide and an average rating of 99.7%, Revent Optics guarantees incredible clarity and a perfect fit or your money back. Get 20% off your first order with code MLB at reventoptics.com MLB. That's R-E-V-A-N-T optics.com MLB. 